0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Sean Foley, author of Changing Saudi Arabia, Art, Culture, and Society in the Kingdom. Sean, welcome to the show
1: Thank you very much for having me, James. I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and with your listeners. Again, I've been a fan of your work and have been and have been following it for a long time. I especially appreciate your ability and insights into looking at things in politics um, that many of us had not seen as politics before, including things like soccer. I found, um, based on your work and others, that among the most interesting insights I had in the Middle East had been talking to people. About football, what, what we call what you call football or what we call soccer in America. So the opportunity to speak with you about my own work that looks at things that may not be necessarily always seen as political, um, in my mind, is very important, and I welcome the opportunity to do so. Thank you. Well, That's
0: very gracious of you. Thank you. In fact, that's what you are doing with arts and uh, and culture. Perhaps you can. Um, we can start off by you telling us a little bit about how you got into, you're interested into the Middle East and how you got uh, to writing a book that really is very insightful and shines a very different light on a country that's in the news, but very complex.
1: Indeed it is. Two stories. Thank you for, uh, for, for asking that question. Um, how I got interested in the Middle East, when, when I was um, a freshman in high school many moons ago, um, I was born and raised in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And I read a book um, by um, a woman named Elizabeth Fernia um, called Guests of the Sheikh. And um, I grew up in, in San Francisco. It was a very diverse city. Um, I knew there was a Chinatown. There were people from India and other places I was familiar um, with African food as well, um, or what I would later learn was Eritrean food, Ethiopian food, but i would not seen as much about the Middle East. And one of the characters in this book, um, in the book, let me pause and explain. The book is a, is a story. It's a memoir of a young woman who's traveling with her husband, who's an anthropologist to Iraq in the 1950s. That's what the book is about. And it's about her life as a woman living in a small Iraqi village um, while her husband does anthropological work first dissertation. And the book struck me on a number of levels. It was an interesting story about a country um, I did read this book in a high school world history class that I'd never seen or heard much about. I knew about the Middle East, I'd seen it in the news, but I'd not seen it directly through this woman's eyes. And one story in particular matched me. I'd actually been born in Oakland, California, the large city across the bay from San Francisco, and one of the characters said, um I'm from Oakland, and they discuss the stories that they had back in Oakland. And the idea that someone in Oakland could be connected to the Middle East so far away um, seemed very interesting to me. And when I was um, an undergraduate at the University of California, Berkeley, um, one of the, I actually took a class in history with Ira Lapidus, and, I, and it awoke my interest. And one of the things that I found um, particularly fascinating about Middle Eastern studies is that Middle Eastern studies um, allowed me to merge a couple of my seemingly contrasting interests. I'm interested in history. I'm also interested in culture and society, but also in politics. And all those things um, in Middle Eastern studies, particularly modern Middle Eastern studies, um, had to come together. Regardless of what you're working on in Middle Eastern studies, it comes back to politics. Now, to add to, to this as well, I got really interested in arts um in the Middle East. And I have an opening study, um, opening discussion of this in my preface to my book, where um I was actually at an art show, I was actually visiting a friend's, um, going to a friend's wedding in the UK, and an extra day, and that extra day I went to go see an art exhibit. And that art exhibit um was of Saudi artists. I vaguely heard of them, men like Ahmed Matar, Abdel Nasser Garam um Manal Dawine, all these other types of artists who would play later play an important role in my book. And they were talking about issues um, that I'd never seen before Saudi artists talk about. Many of the issues that we now talk about today, including the recent story of women being allowed to travel without the without the okay of their guardians, um is something that was discussed in this, women driving in also. But also, more importantly, I I remember being particularly struck by a work by Ahmed Matar called Cowboy Code. And it's a piece on one side, a very large piece. And on one side, there are phrases from Roy Rogers' um, Cowboy Code. And on the other side, there are the codes of war, the Islamic codes of war. And remarkably, Gharam saw, not Garam, excuse me, Ahmed Matar, who did this, saw the two pieces saw these two coats created in very different contexts by very different men as having something in common now when i usually taught at that point i actually saw this piece after being a, a scholar for almost 10 years and teacher i realized that there were things that he was seeing that i had not seen before there were many things that i could learn and by studying these artists it allowed me to expand my own vision of about the kingdom but also my own vision about the world these two things shouldn't have anything in common. Yet a Matar found a way, a Matar who did this piece called Cowboy Code, for them to link together. And I realized this is something I needed to study. There was something these people were saying. As Abdul Nasser um, Garam, um, a famous Saudi artist, said, you need to listen to the artists. And that's
0: exactly what I did. In fact, in the introduction, you you referred to uh, the exhibition as life-changing. That's quite a dramatic way of describing it.
1: Um, it is, um, but it also allowed me, um, it, it, it awoken something in me. Um, and that's in part, part of what the artists want to do. The artists talk about starting a conversation, getting something there. And, and in fact, I should note, it, it was not only a life awakening, but reminded me of some of my own works. Um, my grandfather, for instance, um, was in vaudeville. My father is a poet. So I'm aware of art. But I hadn't written anything in, at great length um, outside of some works on, on, on a musician um, named Maher on the Arab world and then particularly on Saudi Arabia. And it did, it awoken in me something that I needed to reframe how I thought about the world, how I thought about these things. I'll give you an example. Oftentimes when we teach Middle Eastern studies, um, we talk about um, blending or youth synthesizing Islam and modernity. You put modernity on one side and Islam on the other. And you explain to students how different Islamic Mm -hmm. movements have tried to synthesize those two. What Matar was doing in that piece, Cowboy Code, wasn't just synthesizing the two, he was showing that they could coexist in the same space. And it forced me to think again about what my fundamental assumptions were as a scholar, made me rethink not only what a scholar was, um, and again, I, I looked at it to realize art in the Saudi context isn't just mere self-expression but they're voicing something they're voicing the the ideas of multiple people in society they have pieces that show the ability that's clear and sophisticated so it's really clear and sophisticated without necessarily being directly confrontational towards the art or to the political system and again I, i began to realize that almost all of what i'd read had been about politics in this region, about what wasn't possible. And when I looked at these artists, I realized they're showing me something else, something that hadn't been talked about at any length and something that I wanted to investigate, something that that was based on my wor- own work and ideas and deeply also intellectually satisfying and a challenge. When I looked mm-hmm. at a work of art, I realized there was a language in the discussion that was here that I that I knew there was a language there and I had to figure out what it was. And um, it it taught me things about the country that I hadn't seen written about in other scholarship and materials, and which um, I I was really challenged to do. I was extraordinarily lucky to have that moment because the moment hit me um, shortly before I was going to spend about a a little over a year in the country doing research. And I had a a great opportunity um, to be in the country and to travel just about everywhere. And so that meant I had this perfect framework in order to talk about the history of the country, um, in order to talk about its culture and society, and more importantly, I could tell that the ground was moving below me, and that the, that the people in this country were seeing and doing different things. People were traveling and thinking in different contexts. And what made it powerful was that the artists were voicing that, and gave me new ways of looking. How to do that? Um, and they were using comedy and other types of things. And I saw patterns. I, I began with the visual arts, but that's not where it ended. It, it, it continued with stand-up comedy. It continued onward, also, um, also with with YouTube and other types, and now today in film. And I could see clear patterns um, that was emerging. And again, um, I it reminded me of the work of someone like Mark Levine, who famously said that we've got to listen to the mullahs and their followers as much as the musicians and their fans, both at the same time. And it was clear to me that there were some people talking, and we needed to listen to them. And that's what I did. And that that moment forced me to, to reframe what I was going to do. And again, when I was in the country, I spoke to many different types of people in and uh, academic experts at universities, journalists, government officials. They all taught me many things, but I kept on coming back of how original the insights were from the artists. Not only original in what they were saying, but also more importantly, how they said it. And, and not only what it taught me as a scholar about their country, but also the wider world. Indeed, one of the things that to me is remarkable, one of the key issues that we talk about in today is, is tribalism or differences, blue and red in my country, America. Other countries have different divisions as well. And you see them in Saudi Arabia. There are hundreds of tribes. Um, one of the amazing things is if you go mm-hmm. to somebody's house, you will have very different social expectations um, on what on how people will operate. In some homes, you will be with people who are both men and women. In a room. In other cases, the men and women will separate to different places. um How do you deal with these different ideas, different um, regional ideas, different languages, different religions? And the Saudi artists were finding ways to do so. And has occurred to me: not only could this teach me about their country, and and something I needed as an It was a deeply moving experience, but also a deeply humbling one. Um, it reminded me. Um, of a similar um, situation. You live in Southeast Asia. When I first visited Southeast Asia and realized there were Islamic practices in Southeast Asia, people doing things that were different than what I had held in the Middle East, it was a deep reminder. I need to step up my game. I need to learn something new. Um, Same thing when I went to Saudi Arabia. How do you blend these things? And I realized my own culture, even as early as 2013, 2014, these same things were Deeply unsettling. How do we think about different people blending together, Um, talking, acting, different views? How do we find them in the same space? And what's remarkable was that the Saudi artists were offering a fresh questioning, something that allowed me to look at the world in a different way. Um, It was a moving experience on that. It reminded me of my own past, um, my own family's past, but also something for the future as well, all at once. So, yes, it was a life changing experience.
0: That's phenomenal. If you were to describe or categorize the patterns that you detected, how would you describe them? Sure. Um, great question.
1: And indeed, that was actually one of the things I wanted to see. Someone asked me when I, um, a very smart man, a family friend asked me, what did I want to do when I went to Saudi? I said, my, my, the most important thing I wanted to see was patterns. How do we think about these patterns? And one of the first things I, I realized that many artists, and you see this remarkably consistently um, among visual art, comedy, and other things, um, into film as well, was developing structures by which multiple ideas, and particularly um, a word I, I deploy, it's a sort of very academic term, but I'm going to use it here, exoteric. What do I mean by that term? It's a term like it, which means esoteric, which means something that looks confusing but which there's a clear pattern. If you've got the key, you can understand how these different things come together. Exoteric, by contrast, is something very different. It means that there's a whole bunch of ideas, a collage of ideas and concepts in a given work of art, but which the artist does not provide a direct um, idea, a direct definition. And one sees this again and again. They use collage and other types of means um, comedy is another example where you'll say one where a good joke often says one thing when really asserting something else. And you see this again and again. Now, why would they do that? First, that's a way of allowing all different types of people into the work of art. But also um, it allows them to talk about very complex issues and to start a conversation. Indeed, part of what they're doing here, um, what I realized is starting not a point of defining the work of art. But it's a pattern of getting us to start a conversation. The, start, the artists, for instance, um, who began this movement, many of them in the South, um, began around a modulus. And a modulus is a group setting where people come together. You see a modulus in almost every Saudi house. You actually see often from men or women. You'll see it in workplaces. And people will come together to talk about issues. And what they wanted art to become was a new way by which people could talk about issues. And you see the same thing um, in comedies. Let's start a conversation. And if you're going to start a conversation, you've got to be provocative, certainly, to get people's attention. But also you have to open it up to allow lots of different people in. And what the beautiful thing about Saudi art and its intellectual power is this ability to allow multiple people in, to allow people to see what they they want to see, Mm -hmm. to have their own take, so to speak. That, that same artist um aquad Matar the one whose work deeply um deeply affected me as a, a, a piece called yellow cow and yellow cow is a, this wonderful piece that is a story um um that's taken from it is a, a golden calf story again from the Quran you see it also in other historical stories um as well and it's it's a it's a it's a Quranic story but what really matters here is he's using it um in this context as a way of he takes that golden calf story and puts it onto a, an advertisement for a type of milk. And why would he do that? Because he realizes in this context that what he's doing in this context is showing in the modern world. If you want to tell this old biblical story, you've got to do it in a form that people will recognize. And that the form that people will recognize remarkably um, is advertising. And the reason why he's doing that, and it's remarkable if you look at the piece, it simultaneously has elements that are both humor but also serious commentary at once. It's difficult to tell where one begins and one ends. And you see that again and again in Saudi art. There will be both, com- both humor and non and seriousness. Both are used again. You'll see that in visual art, com- stand-up comedy, but also in film as well. And I should note there's a personal note to this. My, my grandfather, um I know, was in vaudeville. and vaudeville, for those who aren't familiar with it, was a um a traveling um theater within the United States roughly between the late nineteenth century and and the beginning of the twentieth century. Very important theater. And one of its most important people to work with it is a man named George M. Cohen. And George M. Cohen actually worked with my grandfather and he did a play called The Tavern. and it's it's a famous play um from this period. And the, one of the the reviewers noted that the play um, could at simultaneously both both be humor as well as seriousness at once. And one of the things I I I couldn't help but be struck when I looked at these Saudi patterns is I kept on being reminded of my own culture and my own tradition, but also of other parts of the world. Again and again, you see Saudis creating structures that can be read in multiple ways at once. Um, can I add another story to elaborate that explanation? P- please do. Yeah one of the one of the great videos um, that a cu- one of the great videos was called No Woman No Drive. It was created by a man named Hisham Faki, a couple of other people as well, at a television company, at a YouTube production company called Telfaz Eleven. Um, Telfaz Eleven, remarkably, e- its name even means something. They actually used the Arabic or French word for television and combined it for two thousand and eleven again, they wanted a way for, for Saudis to talk about all the things that were going on in the Arab Spring, but to do so in a productive way. They actually say this is the year that Arabs showed the world what they could be. Sort of remarkable to be able to talk about it um, in this context. So they do this video called No Woman, No Drive. And it's a it's a humorous video um, based on the Bob Marley song, No Woman, No Cry. So they're bringing this in. This is another powerful example of what they do. They will actually draw in, um, what we would see is foreign or Western ideas, um, identifiably Western ideas, but make them distinctly Saudi. That's another clear pattern that you see in this context that they're able to take global ideas that many of us outside of Saudi Arabia instantly recognize, but transform them into a Saudi context. Now, how do they how do they do this in this song? Well, a couple of things, so this is a complicated story with the song the song itself is, is actually No Woman, No Drive. So it's a story um, actually about when there was a ban on driving um, for women in Saudi Arabia. And in fact, they, they actually choose to release the song remarkably in 2013 on the same day, same day that there's going to be a major driving protest. So this was covered by everywhere around the world. I was fortunate to be in the country at the time when this took place. And, and again, it was a very serious political moment extraordinary political moment. Um, It was so serious. If you've lived in the country, oftentimes um, the police, there are plenty of police and traffic police, but they won't necessarily bother you um, in many ways. But in this context, the police were stopping almost every car during the period around the driving protest, even looking into darkened cars, which is extraordinarily rare, to see whether women were driving. It's an extraordinarily tense moment. Everybody in the country could feel it. So at this extraordinarily tense moment, these guys at the television production company called Pelfast 11 decide to release a video and a video on no women, no drive on the driving moment. How could they do this? Well, their first answer and this again, you see this as well is, well, it's just a joke. Everybody's on all kinds of tension and we're on pins and needles. Let's relax a bit. It's just a joke, right? And if you say it in that context, it's just art or just a joke. That allows an artist to open up and to explore ideas and contexts they would have never been able to study um, before in other contexts. So that's the first thing. So they first, they're going to release this video called No Woman, No Drive. And they release it strategically at the end of the day after almost all the protests are done. And they know also that everybody in the world is going to be watching Saudi Arabia. And they also, importantly, do it um, on YouTube. Um, Again, again, a, a context I'll get to in a moment. And when they explain when they do it on YouTube, um, they they release it and they do. The song should be noted in both Arabic as well as in English. It's actually in English, but with Arabic subtitles. But they distinctly make it um, local. Um, There's no musical sound. There's no musical instruments that are played as a way of acknowledging that some Saudis see music as inconsistent with their Islamic principles and values. It's actually done just them singing. You have a specific character um, who's seemingly the everyday Saudi, played by Hisham Faki, a remarkable comedian, actually, um, who had been schooled both in the United States, who was schooled at both um, Florida State and Columbia, um, playing the lead role where he sings, but sings sort of an off kilter, not a serious voice, though he's a good singer. And he sings this song. And what he does is it's a parody. They take all the extreme uh, arguments against women driving on um, this idea of women driving, and they put them into this video. Put it out there into this video. And um, they have him singing, a couple of other people singing in them as well. They're very distinct as well. They wear Saudi clothing, um, the phobe and Galabia, those things that they're wearing. They have beards as well. They look distinctly Saudi, even though they're singing a song in English um, um, that is taken from a Western context. And the song goes on and it's spread like wildfire. And again, what's remarkable about the song, for many of us who looked at the song, particularly from a Western perspective, um, from a Western perspective, the song seemingly was a parody of everything about the driving protest. If you ask these guys what their view, of course you would assume that's what it meant. But remarkably, remarkably, not everyone in the kingdom saw it that way. In fact, a conservative newspaper actually wrote, quoting the Washington Post, Remarkably, quoting the Washington Post, saying that the Washington Post said, and this, of course, is a false report, but said this anyway, um, that, the, that the song endorsed the ban on women driving. And what's remarkable about the video is that this is a video that discusses an extraordinarily sensitive topic, one in which the government and other people were at odds, in which different people, even more importantly, within society, within families were at odds, but puts it in a context where people can exhale where people can start talking about it. And indeed, that context of of where women and where people of different contexts could at least agree that this thing was something they could all laugh at, they could all see their own vision to, was an opening up of a conversation, which is exactly what they wanted again and again, or often deals with issues um, in the Saudi context that can be seen as political, but put it in a context where everybody can be included. Um, There are other ones um, as well. There's another video um, called Screw the Infidel, which has the same type of thing. It's actually based, it's a video set in Los Angeles um, in the present day where you see someone sort of like an ISIS character go on a rampage, attacking almost everything that's good. And that's a way of, again, it was in 2014, the video was released, um, 2015 at the height of when ISIS was powerful. And again, it's the same type of thing, ISIS being, I should pause, the Islamic State. Um, again that, that controlled portions of both Iraq and Syria. And this again, same type of video, same type of context. Let's create a work of art that allows us to start a conversation um, about a very sensitive topic. And again, the Islamic state was a threat not only in strategic and security terms to say to Saudi Arabia, but also because many Saudis actually decided that they wanted to join it. It's an extraordinary powerful moment. but in this video, like No Woman no Drive in this video, when um, You could have a moment where people could see it as a mockery of it. It was, again, another mock video of these of, of men in the Islamic State. But also, um, people who believed in the Islamic State remarkably saw it as well. Um, Michelle Al-Jesser, the man who's at the heart of that video, um, commented on this one, a long interview with Vice. And again, this is part of the point of art, is to create structures where people can come together. And if they can come together, they can start talking, and we can start talking. Maybe we can solve the issues. One of the things that, 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 again, Saudi art taught me, um, sort of remarkable thing about their culture and patterns, was in the United States, um, um, if a man is told by his wife or spouse or the context we need to talk, that's a very bad thing. That's something that usually means that there's a problem. We're going to have to deal with it. It's a horrible thing. So if you hear we need to talk, uh, me, um, people get very scared. Very, very scared in this context of some, particularly if someone with authority comes. In the Saudi context, we need to talk. And indeed, one of the first art exhibits of Saudi art was called We Need to Talk. Is an invitation to begin a conversation. It's not an it's not a sign of a problem. It's a sign that we want to solve this issue. It's an invitation to something very different, to something that's positive and better. And what I found remarkable about these patterns and these structures is that Saudi artists are creating ways by which to begin to resolve their issues. And it should be noted, for instance, that the issue of women driving um, has now been resolved. It's an issue that where society has begun to come together to find ways to allow this issue to happen. Um, women also, um, and other issues as well, one of the a very powerful art um, called uh, Suspended, um, wh- wh- powerful, powerful artwork by a woman in Manal Dawai, And Manal Suspended, excuse me, it's called Suspended Together. And it's a remarkable work. And again, it's the same type of thing um, where you have a work where you can see these type of patterns. It's a visual art. Um, it's made of 200 porcelain, um, porcelain um, doves in the air. And doves are very powerful images, both for us in the West, um, but also in, in the Middle East. Very powerful images and love poetry and other types of things. Now, taken from a distance, um, suspended together looks as a symbol of freedom and movement. The 200 uh, doves are seemingly in the air, but when you get closer to those images, you see something very different. You actually see that the doves are actually suspended together; they're not moving. But more importantly, on top of the doves, this is again remarkable. On top of the doves um, are uh, permission slips for women of different ages, of different of of, of different um, economic status, and other things. Allowing them to travel, and I, I remind that today because we're recording it a day after the Saudi government has just announced a, a major transformation, um, where women, where women are going to be allowed to travel, or actually not just women, women and men, anyone above the age of 21 can apply for a passport and can travel on their own without the specific, um, without the specific um, recommendation or specific okay um, of of um of their of their guardian again this is another of, of their male guardian or male relative and what's remarkable to me that work was from 2011 2012 so she's talking about that issue and yet a decade later here we see it um being resolved again art often functions one of the things that I begin from the beginning of the book um again this is back to my own work as noted my father um is a poet and I cite um an important scholar named Marshall McLuhan and your, um, your listeners may not be familiar with me. He's a Canadian scholar, taught at the University of Toronto um, for many years. And um, uh, McLuhan um, and it was a, a very good scholar. People would talk about, and a, and a fabulous lecturer, people would talk about how they weren't morning people, but they would get up at eight o'clock in the morning just to make his classes. He was that thrilling of of a lecturer. And um, McLuhan is, is very aware, um, although he was a sort of, sort of solid English professor, was very aware of economic and cultural and technological changes. Um, um, and very, very, very important. And those, those type of changes of, um, uh, of, of particularly with technology and technology allowing people to link themselves together. Um, it's a very famous phrase I teach to almost all my students called the global village. And the global village is this idea of understanding communication. That although, say, for instance, the two of us are in different locales, we're recording this, I'm in, in one continent, you're in another. Because of technology, we share the same cultural and social space. And you know, he's talking about this with radio and television, but this is even more so important today um, with the internet and other types of technology. And this is um, important for a couple of reasons. The Saudi artists realized that Internet, other types of technology, would allow them to create this modulus, which I mentioned earlier, this sort of collective space, and take it first into, into the collective small space, but then also into the larger space of an art gallery. But with technology, you could allow for a modulus to take place, not only at the local or regional scale, but at a national, and even more importantly, at an international scale. And, and these, men are, um, these men and women who are involved in the artistic movement are very much involved in, in understanding and living this process out of understanding how to bring this in. And that goes back also to that, that image that I talked about at the beginning with the patterns, where we talk about how they define it. If we allow everybody into this context, and again, using internet and other technology, we can begin to have everybody have the ability um, to take a role in it and to help define um, this type of art. Um, and again, I should be note, this type of changes isn't just happening here. I was deeply influenced while writing this book um, by a man named David Josselick, who wrote a book about after art and in which he sees similar transformations taking place in Western art. And in particular, the type of person who's the art where the artist is not necessarily defining the work, where the artist allows society um, to define that artwork. In the context of Saudi Arabia, that's very important, particularly in a context where, again, society in Saudi context has its own individual values, including the idea of a group or collective decision making, not just necessarily individuals. And part of what makes Saudi art so remarkable is its ability to function in a Western context where the individual is important, um, but also in a a context of Saudi where the individual is is treated in, in in a different way, in a different context. I mean, that's very, very powerful. Again and again, Saudi artists are ability to take ideas that we hold dear and turn them upside down. Matar again, talks about, hey, you know, art in a Western context, that's great. But it's even more interesting in the context of Saudi Arabia where we're forced to be creative, to think, to manage, to go around different roadblocks and other types of things. And that creates better and more powerful art. Again, everything he taught me again and again, forced me to challenge me to think About what i thought about the world um not only today but in the past
2: and in the future hello everybody this is marshall poe i'm the editor-in-chief of the new books network are you listening to this nbn episode on himalaya if you are congratulations because you're already using the best new podcast app out there i listen to a lot of podcasts i've tried a lot of podcast apps and i can tell you that himalaya is the best one available So if you're not listening to this NBN episode on Himalaya, you're missing out. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya is designed with you in mind and has a ton of cool features like curated, shareable playlists and collections made just for you along with personalized recommendations to help with content discovery. And the best part is, it's super easy to use. It's definitely my favorite listening app and I'm sure it'll be yours too. So do yourself a favor and download Himalaya today. And be sure to subscribe to your favorite NBN channel. We have 87 of them, so you're probably going to find what you want there. And I hope that you listen to what
0: you want on Himalaya. Uh, It strikes me that the strength of your book is that, you know, breaking with the paradigm of analysis of the kingdom, you see through the prism of society, art, and culture, a very different grassroots social discourse. Perhaps you could elaborate on what's different about it, but also to what degree this is a discourse irrespective of how valid that is restricted to certain social groups. Sure. One of the things when,
1: when um, there's a, a very famous scholar named Edward Said, um, uh, many of your author, many of your listeners may be familiar, many may not be. He wrote a, a big, um, multiple books, um, including one that deeply affected Middle Eastern scholars called Orientalism in the 1970s. And one of the things that um, he wanted to break away from in Western culture was our rarefied essence of left versus right, north versus south, east versus west, that we have to understand culture and society only in a two-frame framework, that it's either left or right. And part of what he wanted to do was to break free of that. And one of the things that's remarkable about Saudi artists is their inclusivity. Their ability isn't, they want to reframe how conversations are talked about, not just necessarily left versus right, but they want to expand what is possible um, when we talk about this. And if you're going to expand about what that's possible, you have to go into the grassroots. You have to be able to reflect not only your own views, but also the views of countless other types of people and what it means to be culturally possible in this context. And it means also um, that you have to understand that the lines of where something ends and where it begins isn't necessarily as clear and is constantly in motion. One of the wonderful things, again, um, going back to McLuhan that I mentioned earlier, and of course, after, um, and McLuhan citing us for Pound, is that the artists function often as a mirror, as an early warning system to what's going on, what people are thinking about. Um, Again, with comedy, you'll see Joan Rivers talks, has a famous quotation, I'm just saying everything that you, you know, I'm just verbalizing what you have, what you in the society are thinking, but haven't said. And Part of the point of this culture is to show That political and cultural contexts and this type of culture, things that are not necessarily on the day-to-day context. And what I mean by that is when we think about politics in a place like Saudi Arabia, it often begins and ends with governmental elites. And there's absolutely no question that that is important. Um, It's a country that's regularly in the news, has close connections to my government in the United States, countless others. Saudi Arabia also plays an important role as an export of oil. Something that we all use in the world, either directly or indirectly. But that doesn't mean that politics or culture begins and ends with elites. Those elites also have to interact with the rest of society. And that politics can occur in context, even when there is not regular presidential, other types of elections, or the types of press um, freedoms that we enjoy in other societies. That there are other ways that people can talk and express their issues and express multiple views at once. And part of the point of art is it allows us to see what the culture is thinking, not only the culture is thinking now, but what the culture will be thinking well into the future. And part of what I, I found um, most distressing and uh, when I deal with culture and politics in this part of the world is how limited it is. Um, to me, culture in society is extraordinarily rich and it provides a powerful avenue um, into other types of things about how a culture makes decision um, makes decisions. Um, how why they make one choice versus another, why they prefer or or prefer certain groups or others. And what art allows us to do is to dig deeper into the grassroots to understand not just that this is these are sort of these structures that work in this way with economics or with political power, but there are other things that shape how people act, what language they use, how they present those ideas. Um, and again, those ideas can work in different contexts and are working with different types of things. One of the things that 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 strikes me is utterly remarkable about uh, Saudi artists is how deep their knowledge is of the rest of the world. And that when I look at a Saudi work of art, um, it's not just Saudi art. I've got to know that and their culture, which is Arab and religious, and often with Islam, but also how many other things they're sucking in from other cultures, how much I have to learn as a scholar in order to, to begin to pick apart. Um, or begin mm-hmm. not pick apart, let me back up, in order to begin to even explain a basic work of art. And part of what this means is we need scholars, um, particularly those of us in the Gulf, and it's a growing field, thankfully, for many years, it's sort of a bailiwick that many people didn't want to get into, but today many people are. We have some fantastic scholars. Um, Beth the Darien is an example of a young woman who just finished a dissertation at Northwestern University on art um, um, in the Emirates. Is that we need to expand what we think about as what's political and what's possible to talk about um it would be until quite recently you would be difficult to find someone who thought about poetry or art as being involved in this part Mm -hmm. of the world um it was easy for many people to assume and in fact even some saudis which is to me among the most remarkable thing you will find saudis will look at you and say how is it possible we don't have any art that's for other people to have other cultures other societies Um, To have, I'll even get reminded of that. I do some work on social media, and I'll post something, and someone say, "I mean, art in Saudi Arabia? You must be kidding!" Indeed, a scholar or a good anthropologist who teaches at King Saud University, an important university in Riyadh in in Saudi Arabia, actually wrote in 2013: "If there's anything that defines what Saudi culture is, and if it is a culture, which by itself is an interesting question, he's wondering whether there is a Saudi culture, he says, hostility to the arts." is at its base, defines it. Yet when I look at Saudi art, I wrote a whole book, there's a ton of art here. And this art isn't just there, it's having a cultural and social impact. And also I should note, builds on much older traditions. It should be noted when we think of Saudi art. Um, I wanna make it clear, this is not just art that appeared in this era. It's a different type of art. It's a unique art. And that art, I should note, begins the movement that talks about in my book is really in the beginning of the 21st century, but stretches back decades. Um, for instance, there have been poets who have been writing in Saudi Arabia for decades. There are songwriters and important musicians. Muhammad Abdu, for instance, a very important singer, um, has been involved as well. And what's remarkable about when we go back and look at those trends, about multiple ways of looking at things, both inclusive and not inclusive, if you go back and look at those older artists of uh, debates, for instance, between modernists and non-modernists in Saudi art um, in the beginning of the 20th century, in the mid-20th century, You see the same thing, very similar patterns. There's a cultural thing that emerges. And and my argument is that if we're going to understand how this country works, and it's a country, Saudi Arabia, at the heart of many different political and structural issues in the world on many levels, we have to understand its culture. Its culture informs its politics, its society, and everything. That means we have to ask new questions um, as well. And again, that means looking at the grassroots. And I, I use a specific term to describe these artists in order to get back at that. I actually use a guy, Antonio Gramsci, And this is me being putting on my academic hat for a moment. And he has a term called organic intellectuals. And what he means by this are these are intellectuals who are not part of the political elite or the economic or cultural elite. They're not like me, university professors like you, a, a journalist. But they're people who are in touch with society. Um, who are able to voice in ways that are different the views of what the rest of the country can't say. Not only their views, but also other cultures. Indeed, Abdel Nasser Garam, who I um, mentioned multiple times earlier, talks about art functioning as a mirror. And that mirror means you're seeing everything from the grassroots up. And it's something that everybody in culture has to think about. And you'll see it in crazy contexts. Um, Senior government officials um, will cite um, we'll work directly with the arts, but also we'll cite lines. There's a wonderful soliloquy um, exchange in a movie called Baraka Meets Baraka, again, a, a video by uh, Sham Faki, a movie by, starring the comedian Hisham Faki um, that was actually nominated for an Academy Award. And actually, you can watch it on Netflix. There's a wonderful exchange between his character, who plays a young man, who's a young municipal worker um, in his 20s, and his older father about what transforms Saudi Arabia. And, 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 and in particular, they're talking about in 1979, there was an attack on the Kaaba. The Kaaba is a um, the Grand Mosque in the Kaaba. It's a central place in Mecca, a very holy place within Saudi Arabia, but also a central part that Muslims go on pilgrimage, or what's called Hajj. In fact, Hajj will be starting in just a couple of weeks annually. It happens annually every, every year and will be in a couple of weeks. And in that moment in 1979, there was an attack on the hot, on on the Kaaba in Mecca, and that led the government to transform um, society to allow more um, uh, allow religious forces to have a much greater say in public life, and in 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 particular, a um, limit on the space that women and other people could have in public contexts, in these large contexts as well, and transform society. It's so a cardinal moment allowing for what Saudis see called the sahwa to emerge, defining everything in the decades afterwards. And in this context, there's a, solo, there's a sort of exchange between the young character played by Faki and his older, very sickly father, in which Faki asks him, why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you fight for our culture? We used to be more open. We used to have our own soccer players and music and other types of things and then you allowed the religious forces to take a much greater life. And what's remarkable is that maybe about six to nine months after the movie came out, a senior government official almost quoted it, used it almost word for word. And you've seen other artists as well. There's a, a, a TV series during Ramadan, and Ramadan is one of the holy months of the year in the Islamic calendar. It's when Muslims fast from sunup to sundown. Um, To very wholly important month. And during that month, there are lots of television shows. And one of them was called Asuf. And Asuf had a very similar discussion. You could see the same question about what society was like and how it was transformed. You can see, again, art playing this role. Um, It's not just the artist, it's not just the government telling the artist what to do, it's also the artist speaking back and influencing, forcing government officials, even the most senior of government officials, to thought to introspection, to rethink these types of things. And indeed, remarkably, if, if you see new institutions that have emerged, particularly since 2015, one of the things that's remarkable that you'll see is how um, MISC, a new organization, a, a cultural another organization, is structured and in fact looks in many ways, functions in many ways, um, like these media organizations, mm-hmm. um, like the one I mentioned, Telfast 11, um, in that context, a remarkable context that you see.
0: It seems to me that you're describing two fields of tension. Uh, you quoted before the Saudi sociologist who said, contempt for the arts lies at the heart of the kingdom's values. And in a sense, you know, it, it, what it seems to be what you're saying is that there's this explosion of modern as opposed to traditional arts as a result of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's reforms, but that it's not that it's something that's contested. It's not universally accepted. And the other field of tension that it seems to me that you're describing is that Prince Mohammed's liberalization is uh, in part an effort to harness the arts, to shift the legitimacy of the rule of the al-Sauds, and particularly of Mohammed bin Salman, away from a, primarily a religious identity to one that is nationalist and designed to rally the public around the crown prince's throne, if you wish.
1: Okay, great questions. First, um, I think there's no question that there is a tension, and I think they themselves would question whether the art is modern or not. We, of course, use that term. But um, in many ways, um the term modern is a d- they would they would take issue with that, saying this is our own version or perhaps their own version. And indeed, there are fundamental tensions. One of the problems that I find with with dealing with this art is we don't necessarily have the language to describe it. Um, when you see those tensions, it's not just the tension between w- religious or modern or other types of things, but it's also a tension. Um, one of the terms um, John Vol uses is sec-religious, that we have to be able to have both secular and religious, modern and non-modern occupying the same space. And I'm still working out what those terms are. But there's absolutely no question that there is a tension that's emer- that has emerged. And there's absolutely no question as well, and I should back up, that the reforms, of course, that Mohammed bin Salman um, has allowed for these to take a greater form. Um, artists, for instance, now play a role in political, um, play a role um, on diplomatic roles now as well. Whenever the the Saudi Crown Prince or or the King Salman travels, there are art that goes with it. But it should be noted that this predates the Crown Prince's emergence on the global on the political scene by near by more than a decade. And in fact, one of the things that's sort of remarkable is that. This is, you're right in a certain level that this is a, a certain degree of seeking to harness those other issues, seeking to um, take advantage of or work with issues that are already there, that society is is talking on its own, is asking for these changes, and that the cultural and political issues come from the other end. And and this fundamentally challenges one of the things that we look at these cultures, that it's from the top up, right? Coming from the top down. And in a certain level, what you see is Solomon who has his own. Um, intentions and other types of things, particularly with, with Vision 2030, seeking to take advantage of a political wave that's already in context, that's already moving um, in there. And indeed, those tensions are still very much being worked out. There's not It's not easy at all um, to work out where those are. And it takes time in order to, to work it out. And indeed, part of it is how do you discuss um, political tensions? How do you discuss? How do you criticize? How do you find ways to do that? And that's not an issue um, that's been resolved. Artists, though, I think provide us a way to see how that conversation can occur, how it might occur in a a, a fundamentally different way and to find ways by which Saudis can manage those tensions. It should be noted that Saudi artists are very aware in particular of the tension between modernity and religion and to seek in many ways to move beyond it. they—they they, um, Again and again, you hear them implying in particular about Tash Matash, um, the show um, that was on Saudi television, um, Nasser al-Qasabi was in it for many years, and that was a show that had strong government support, um, but did not necessarily have the rest of the support of all of society, creating enormous tensions for that show, actually forcing many of the people on that show to actually leave the kingdom at one point. And I think part of what they're doing here, I wouldn't necessarily say the tension is necessarily um, between state and other contexts, but part of it is also between between society itself. What artists are seeking to do is find ways by which religious and modern, what we would call modern, can coexist um, in that context. They're constantly looking for ways to do that. To have a stand, that for instance, um, Omar Hussein, one of the early stand-up comedians, doing a stand-up comedian routine at a Quranic recitation party. That's the type of thing that we assume can't work, right? That the it is, But the Saudi artists were consciously trying to do that. In fact, when they talk about these types of things, they're very consciously seeking to find ways that, yes, we have to deal with the government. There are specific red lines that are there, but we also have to be able to deal with the rest of society. And in fact, the artwork in many ways is trying to find a way to reconcile those two types of things. Again and again, one notes Islamic motifs and other types of things that you see in it as a way of answering that question already. Now, on the, so if that's the, how I'd answer the first one. On the second one, there's, again, absolutely no question that um, Mohammed, Mohammed bin Salman is certainly trying to utilize the arts. Indeed, as I, I note in the, in the conclusion of the book, MISC in many ways as an institution, and MISC is his nonprofit organization that seeks to promote creativity and culture that's there, um, is certainly building on it. And in fact, there are enormous echoes, not only what they say, but in particular on the ideas of creativity. Um, One of the things that, um, one of the initial um, media companies and the Saudi comedians, once the appearance of, of the internet came online, created their own media companies, in part because YouTube was a place where it was less regulated, where they could effectively do what they might want to do on television, but transform it on a YouTube context. There was an initial company called Creative Cultural Catalysts. And that's, you know, C3 is what it was called. It eventually became Telfaz 11. But what's remarkable is that that idea of creativity, um, that we want to create, have a create, creative moment, an idea that we can all take advantage of it, is something that we see um, again and again in Salman, in, in Mohammed bin Salman's own ideas. In fact, MISC itself, in part of its name, is the promotion of creativity. Almost the exact same title, which is remarkable in that context. And certainly there is a desire not only to reform Saudi Arabia, again, to move clearly away from the religious definitions that had defined much of Saudi life, particularly since I said the, ni- the late 1970s, but also create a new type of Saudi Arabia that's not just nationalistic, and certainly that's there, but also a, a, a one in which the, the old rules of the order um, can be re- reformulated and can be rethought. Again, like a Saudi work of art, um, the Vision 2030 is seeking to reformulate to start a conversation, to reformulate and to solve the issues that have plagued the society um, for decades. There's absolutely no question um, that is what is being done in this context. It's, it's a parallel type of thing. It has, of course, had its own starts and fits, and, is, and it's had its own tensions, extraordinary political tensions, um, both here and abroad. But that is what is going on.
0: You, um, you rightly note that fatwas or religious opinions issued by religious authorities are not binding and often not followed by many Saudi artists, or others for for that matter, who, uh, in the case of artists, for example, the issue of depicting humans and animals. While that is true, the question is twofold. The opinions are often issued in response to a question from a member of the public, and as such a reflection of a strand of public thinking. And the problem is that we don't necessarily know what that strand represents. Uh, the other issue, of course, is that the ability to ignore such opinions in a country like Saudi Arabia really depends on uh, what the ruler wants and what his grip on society is.
1: Okay, I would I would back up and say a couple of things. First, um, one of the, um, again, thank you for asking about that. For me, fatwas are a fascinating document because they are um, oftentimes a collage. Um, they're often multiple, they're actually a discourse, a conversation, again, like a modulus, um, where you have multiple opinions in the same space, at times often differing ones. One of the remarkable things, um, I'm actually, my my next project, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about, but smoking deals with this, is that you actually have someone assert their opinion and then the response happens mm-hmm. um, in that context. And so at a certain level, you get both opinions mm-hmm. Um, at once in the same space, not necessarily of equal value, but they do provide a very powerful way uh, of understanding um, larger views of what's going on in society. They function in a certain level um, like art in both ways. Now, the context about um, a fundamental tension is we assume that the ruler or other types of things is the only way by which stuff is enforced. And I, I, I would actually beg to differ on that. Um, it depends entirely on the context and in part part of what that reflects is what society at a larger level wants. Again and again, if you look at Fatawa, it's not just with art, but you see in other contexts as well, um, as you've written about, say, for instance, with football or um or what what we would call in the States soccer, or what I, what I'm writing my next major project on about smoking, again and again, you actually will see Fatawa, um and again, or, or uh, let me back up are religious opinions issued by senior religious figures um, that seem to be in complete um, in complete opposition to what the society to, to what is actually going on in society. Now certainly a ruler plays a role in it and there's absolutely no question that the ruling fa- the ruling family um, at both a national and at a local level um, have enormous powers. but I would actually argue that part of it has to do with the way the culture looks. And part of what art it, it teaches us, it's not just, again, we assume it's just what the ruler tells us. That goes back to what I talked about at the beginning about the thinking of of, what's poss- of what is not possible, that the ruler says, "This is it, this is all that's possible." in this context. What's interesting about the artists is that the artists understand that you can begin to reframe that conversation and what is possible by transforming it over time. And in fact, what you see with artists. Is in certain things in certain contexts are not possible, but subsequently they are. L- let me give you an example of, of what I mean by that. There's a great piece um, that Abdul Nasser Garam did called Sarat, And it's a Sarat being path, it has the opening of the Surah Fatiha. It's actually a piece that was done um, in, in response to an accident that occurred at a bridge many years ago in southern Saudi Arabia. And this bridge was actually built by bin Laden construction. They didn't do the requisite prayer, it was in a valley. Modern bridge, and everybody, when the flood came, all this water came, people thought this would be the safest place to be when the flood came into this valley. That's not what happened. The bridge was not well built, and it collapsed, fell apart. Garab did a piece in order to talk about infrastructure by focusing on this bridge. He actually painted the word sarat, which has many different meanings on it um, in this context. Um, He did the painting, did it. Um, And it was about to show it at a show in London when they realized this might actually offend people, that there was worry that that religious elites, those who do these type of fatwas, including that images are are bad, human images are bad, um, would not be allowed to do so. And they basically pushed him to put another work of art, which he did. But a few years later, he put that artwork, he marketed it. And in fact, his work of art, his major work of art. Um, his book about his art has that on its cover. So it's remarkable to see um, that artists are able to to, to transform, to chip at, um, to focus and allow people to change the framework of the conversation. Again, it's remarkable to me that you will see something that has nothing to do with ruler or not rulers, say cartoons. Um, there's a wonderful show called Masamir or Loose Screws, which is filled with humans and animals operating and speaking um, to each other. The man who actually operates, who does this, man, Malik um, Nudger, um, himself a fascinating figure um, in multiple ways, a very pious religious person from a, a close area, but still is putting out on screen, regularly, popular, putting out on screen these types of images um, in this context. Part of what I would argue with the Fatwas is, is that um, there are areas where religious and non-religious elites come in common and areas where they don't. Um, and part of it is based on what what governments want, but also part of it is based on what society operates on. Again and again, um, uh, Saudi artists themselves, again, remember that phrase, listen to the artists, talk about that their problem is with the artists. I'll, I'll give you a good example of that. When I mentioned, um, mentioned um, um, uh, Tashmatash, Tashmatash um, was... Famously liked by King Abdullah, who was then um, by Crown Prince Abdullah, later King Abdullah. it was called the largest fan in the country. Yet despite what he wanted, despite his support, the show eventually had to go off air. The people had to leave the country. So in the end, certainly the king and others make a final say, but they're not the only ones as to what what works and what doesn't. The rest of society automatically wants something on a larger level. It will happen. It's not just the king. Indeed, part of my, my question and often is, where's the chicken or the egg um, in these contexts? Um, how do we define what those are? How does public opinion work? And it's not always clear. Part of the benefit of art and also of fatwas is allowing us to see where, where public opinion is on a broader scale. Um, and that the type of public opinion that re- that leaders have to listen to and to follow.
0: That raises fascinating questions. That raises fascinating questions, and I have many more questions, and we probably could go on for at least another hour, but unfortunately, we're nearing the end of our time. Um, thank you very much, but before I let you go, I, you already mentioned that your next project involves smoking, uh, and it would be great if you could elaborate a little bit.
1: Sure. Thank thank you very much. Um uh, on that. And again, um, thank you as well. I, I would welcome an opportunity to spend an hour also with you because it would sharpen my own arguments. Anytime I get a chance to speak with you and to hear your questions and analysis, it forces me um to 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 get my game better and to transform my own views. Um my next book actually, um, you're welcome. Again, you, you do a lot of work. And uh, it's you know, I don't we don't always necessarily have to agree, but that doesn't mean I'm not gonna listen to what you have to say, and that's important. And um you're welcome. Um, what I would say is that I'm actually interested in smoking. Actually. Um, when I was in, in the country, one of the things that struck me, um, was that, um, everybody seemed to smoke. Um, and that there was a significant amount of smoking, even though there were lots of fatwas, um, and lots of religious traditions. And this is a long tradition in which smoking had seemingly, um, would seem in which smoking had seemingly, um, been opposed um, and remarkably, Saudi Arabia was actually one of the first countries in the world to ban um, advertising of cigarettes um, very early on and um, public advertising, yet smoking seemed to be almost everywhere. Now, this is changing. Um, again, Mecca and Medina, for instance, no longer have smoking are allowed. But again, how do these two oppositional forces coexist? Right? How do they, it's the same, I, I kept on seeing echoes of that um, as well. And that's what my next project is going to take a look at. I've looked at it already. And again, it allows us to look at cultural change over a long period of time, particularly with the transformation of smoking. And remember, this is a country in the 50s, particularly in the 50s, where when people would travel, they would be note that they couldn't smoke. When um, famously, if you take a look at the picture um, of uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the American president of the 1930s and 1940s, American president. I'm sure you've seen the picture of him meeting with King Abdulaziz, very famous shot that's often seen as the beginning of the important relationship between the United States um, and Saudi Arabia, which is um, banned with a former ambassador likened to a Catholic marriage. And what's remarkable about that shot, We you take a look at Roosevelt, he's not smoking. And that's a, a crazy thing because this is a man who's chain smoked all the time. Yet in the 50s, Remarkably, in the 40s and the 50s, Saudi Arabia was a country that defined itself to the outside world as a country in which people did not smoke. Now, the reality was a little more complicated, but that's how it defined itself. Yet, 40 years later, if you look by the mid-1980s, Philip Morris looks at Saudi Arabia as its most profitable market in the world. How did that happen? How did that transformation happen? And that's part of what I'm looking at in, in, in my next book project, not only on Saudi Arabia, but also on the larger world. And to me, it allows us to see, to understand um, a a subject that to me has been understudied to this point, not only in Saudi Arabia, but also in other parts of the Muslim world. It allows us to look at the linkages, again, things that you're interested in looking at between Southeast Asia and the Middle East. If you look, for instance, at Indonesia, when we talk about smoking in the Muslim world, Indonesia is both the largest Muslim country in the world, but also the fifth largest um, market for cigarettes in the world. How do Muslims talk about this context? And it goes back also to fascinating religious issues. Um, there's a um, wonderful report that's done in the mid-1980s by a Western tobacco executive in the country. And he he says that, this is in Saudi, he says, look, they yell and scream that pork and alcohol are haram and that so is tobacco. But don't worry, tobacco is not as haram as pork and alcohol. are. How's that possible? Well, the answer is in the Saudi context, in a religious tradition that emphasizes the Quran and the Hadith over everything else if there's no mention of tobacco in the Quran and the Hadith then possibly it is what halal or at least permitted how do i know this argument in part i've taken a look at some of the fatwas where people assert those arguments at the beginning and to me it's a fascinating argument about looking about culture and society you know if you look at the religious arguments in countries like Jordan or Oman, which have different religious traditions than the Saudis do um, in this context, they'll look at it differently in part because of how they look at Islamic law. And to me, it's a fascinating intersection of culture, socioeconomics, um, as well as uh, as well as politics and society. Many of the same a number of the same types of issues that I see in the Saudi context um, are allowed in this context um, as well. And it allows us to think about these cultures in ways that that are different. In that way and again it's it's not politics but it's it's but it it certainly has political it's not traditional politics we're not dealing with the crown prince
0: but it is certainly political that sounds like a great project and a book that i look forward to reading thank you for being on the show today i really enjoyed it i thought this was a fascinating conversation with enormous insights wish you all the best and take care
1: thank you very much for your time
0: is a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law and i'm the host tori telfer i am a true crime writer who started criminal broads after realizing that i was uncovering far too many out of control and terrifying stories about criminal women to fit in a single book so if you like stories about female cult leaders con women women who undergo (laughs) seven sessions of plastic surgery to avoid arrest for 14 years and 11 months uh, women who hung out with Bonnie and Clyde, or serious speculation about the deranged theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman, I think you'll like this podcast. Look for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening app or follow along at Instagram.com slash criminalbroads where I post a lot of photos so you can look deep into the eyes of some of the murderesses we'll be talking about. See you there. Kick it.
2: Break it. Bye.